Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak again today. And I really amazed at your endurance and all these lectures and presentations today. Um, it's a compelling subject, and uh, it is something that we all need to learn more about. And that whole uh, phrase about what happens in Las Vegas uh, stays in Las Vegas doesn't apply to any of these presentations, doesn't apply to this one. I want you to take this information and apply it and spread the word as much as you can about the concepts of transformative care. And just to define that uh, right now, transformative care is integrating training, patient training with evidence-based treatments. So we do a great job at treating patients and I'll show a lot of uh, systematic reviews on some of the treatment strategies, but we really need work on, on training patients on how to reduce those factors that cause delayed recovery those risk factors, as well as how to enhance the protective actions that they do to really prevent chronic pain and, uh, and persistent uh, and delayed recovery. So this particular presentation is focused on myofascial pain. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about why that is. Uh, here's my uh, background material, nothing to disclose. I'll talk a little bit about the impact of chronic muscle pain and define it talk a little bit about the mechanisms of what it is, risk and protective factors, and how to apply it within a transformative care model. So as we all know, and as you heard all day long, that chronic pain is the big elephant in the room of healthcare. It's the number one reason for patients seeking care. It's the number one cause of disability, and, and today it was on workers' compensation. Uh, and muscle tissue, interestingly enough, is really the largest tissue in the body. It's about 45% of our body weight. And nociception in muscles is quite extensive. It's designed to protect us, protect that largest tissue that we have in the body that allows us some mobility. And acute muscle strain is very common. Um, and there are many, many risk factors for developing chronic pain in myofascial pain, they're very common. So it's the most common disorder that, that several studies, and I'll show some studies that have found as the physical disorder that contributes to chronic pain. So the prevalence of myofascial pain in the pain population, several studies, including one that we did, 85% of back pain patients in a hospital pain clinic had this as a primary diagnosis, in other words, the cause of their pain. 55% in a head and neck pain, university pain clinic, 65% in a rehabilitation clinic. So by far, it is the most common diagnosis. I thought arthritis, uh, disc disorders may be higher than that, but it, as the primary cause of pain, uh, and they, of course, they go hand in hand. They go, they go together frequently. So in the general population, several studies have looked at it, 13% uh, with shoulders, myofascial pain in a general population, 30% of all patients in an internal, with pain in an internal medicine practice had myofascial pain, and 19% had masticatory myofascial pain in the young adult population. So even in a non-pain population, it's very common. Uh, so it behooves us to really understand more about myofascial pain and how, how we can better manage it, particularly early stage 
at the primary care level before it progresses into more chronic or intractable chronic pain. So it's often overlooked. Uh, this is an undiagnosed uh, tension-type headache, mus muscular headaches. It's often misdiagnosed. Uh, um, it says, is as suspected, Mr. Harding here is possessed by demons causing the pain. Um, it's not demons. It's a real physical disorder. It's overtreated. This is a patient that was presented to me. She showed me her x-rays. For those of you who are not dental providers, these are all root canals of every tooth because this patient had myofascial pain referring to the teeth, didn't think it was could do to the muscles, thought it was the teeth, did root canals and all the teeth, almost all the teeth, still had pain, came to me, we treated for myofascial pain, patient got better, and it's, it's not a mystery to manage myofascial pain successfully. And we'll talk about that. And even to some extent, patients have a lot of comorbid psychosocial factors, and often patients are labeled as, uh, as having a psychiatric disorder when actually it's a physical problem. It's real. Uh, you can duplicate it with your examination. Uh, but frequently, there are behavioral and psychosocial factors that lead to more severe reactions, unfortunately, like this uh, particular case. Um, it is also unsuccessfully treated because many people don't know the paradigms, the treatment paradigms that really work very well for myofascial pain. And so a lot of studies uh, in myofascial pain and chronic pain find that uh, most people, sorry, um, most people who have pain at one month still have pain five years later. So several studies have shown this to be the case, and it is frustrating for the patient to not know what to do. Now, one of the paradigms of transformative care is that we need to tell the patients that treatments are fine and, and they do help short term, but it's really 80% of your success is based on what you do, and we're happy to train you on what to do. So myofascial pain is based a lot in the management based on self-management strategies, whether it's exercise, posture, reducing repetitive strain, and a variety of other factors. And so myofascial pain is relatively simple. Prevalence is high. It's easy to identify very clear mechanisms. That's questionable to some extent, but uh, consistent changeable causes, treatments that work well, training can be relatively easy. And a, a model where you integrate training with treatment is really very much appreciated by patients. Understand that it's difficult to integrate training into our workforce, so our workflow. Very difficult to do, and I'll have some solutions for that, hopefully. So we all need to understand it. So here's the definition. It's a regional pain due to localized tender nodules in a taut band of muscle, tendon, or fascia, that when palpated reproduces the pain in local and in some cases distant referral sites. So it's a knot in a muscle that's tender, and when you press on it duplicates the pain. So it's pretty straightforward. The characteristics are a trigger point, and this is out of Trevell and Simon's classic textbook on myofascial pain. Um, it's referred pain, sometimes regional. In other words, here are trigger points. There's usually regional pain here, but occasionally it will refer down into uh, more distant patterns, which makes it more difficult to diagnose. Uh, there's a twitch response in larger muscles that is documented by EMG. 
There's sometimes there's motor dysfunction, like subjective weakness, limited range of motion, which is about limited by 10 to 20% versus joint problems, which can be limited by a greater extent. And the end feel of range of motion in the joints, the end feel, in other words, when you stretch it, you can stretch it to a full range of motion. But it hurts to do that. So there is some pain in range of motion. And sometimes, particularly in the head and neck area, there is some autonomic symptoms, hyperemia, altered sensation, imbalance, dizziness, blurred vision, tinnitus are all things that we see within masticatory and head and neck myofascial pain. So here's an example of referral pattern from the temples. This is such a common problem. Um, most of us, if you find your, go to your temples right now and see if you can find that taut band, there's an increase in, or decrease in pain threshold, tender, tender pain threshold right there. And that, when that becomes activated, when you clench your teeth, it becomes a repetitive strain, adds a sensitization, peripheral sensitization there, increases this tenderness here, and this will result in a temple pain that sometimes radiates above or behind the eye, and on occasion will refer to the upper teeth. So there's a broad referral pattern due to convergence uh, facilitation. So leg pain is similar. Uh, you can see trigger points here that spread down across the leg. So a variety of different uh, trigger point patterns. These are very reproducible patterns. They're documented very well in Travell and Simon's classic text, but uh, you know, there's some ver little bit of variation that I have found, uh, at least in the head and neck area, with uh, some of the patterns that they've found. Um, and you can see this uh, back and hip pain, uh, quadratus lumborum, sometimes refers down here uh, to some of the hip area. So there's, there's a diverse patterns that are very consistent and reproducible. When you know where the pain is, go to try to find that consistent trigger point related to it. So you have to know that pattern in order to really diagnose it accurately. And there are charts, very nice charts that you can get. It's very easy to understand those patterns of referral. So, but it is different, difficult sometimes to differentiate it from other muscle pain syndromes. Uh, but myositis, for instance, uh, an inflammation, which where you have generalized tenderness over the whole muscle, secondary to trauma or some type of infectious process within a muscle. A muscle spasm, which is an acute uh, a contraction of the muscle, um, sec usually secondary to some type of over, very exquisite overuse. Or, uh, and then there's contracture, which is more of a long-standing um, limited range of motion due to the muscles, where you have some fibrosis or scarring within the muscle. And of course, neoplasia and fibromyalgia, which is very often confused with myofascial pain. In fact, there's a lot of overlap between the two. Sometimes you can have multi, multiple sites of myofascial pain that appears to be just like fibromyalgia. But there are other fi characteristics of fibromyalgia that will distinct, distinguish it from regional or multi-site regional myofascial pain. And there's really a difference in the whole uh, risk factors or cause etiology of regional myofascial pain versus the central factors associated with, with uh, fibromyalgia. So let's look at mechanisms now. 
Now, within all skeletal muscles, we do have a distribution of both type 1 and type 2 fiber types distributed throughout the skeletal muscles. And so you can see this as an example. Uh, fiber type 1, which is a red or slow twitch, is related to postural muscle tone. That's what you're using right now as you sit in your chair. You're holding your head to a certain point. You're sitting in a good posture. You're not tensing the muscles. You're just maintaining a, a certain degree of muscle tension, and that's what muscle fiber types 1 are involved in. They're slow twitch. They use a lot of oxygen. High O2 ATP production, mitochondria, and increased vascularity to allow that sustained muscle contraction over time. And a characteristic, perhaps, is posture. A marathon runner is here. Now, muscle fiber types, too, though, are these fast twitch. I mean, they're more the sprinting muscles. They're large forces over a brief period of time, low endurance, fast twitch. They use anaerobic glycolysis associated with low O2, but high production of lactic acid, and a sprinter is a good example of that. Now, what happens in myofascial pain, or with strain being placed on the muscles over a period of time, is muscle fibers are like chameleons, that you can convert some muscle fiber types from slow twitch to fast twitch, and vice versa, depending upon the demand on the muscle. So increased demand from high forces over a short period of time will convert from the slow twitch postural muscles to the fast twitch. Whereas increased demand from like weightlifting, things like that, will go the other way, or from, from sustained postural strain for a long period of times will go the other way. So they convert. Now what happens with, uh, with this, and the studies have been looking at biopsies of trigger points to see, well, what's going on within the muscles have found a variety of studies quite a few years ago, actually, that there was abnormal metabolic activity in these type 1 postural mu muscle fiber types. And there's low oxygen ATP, the fuel is depleted, there's ragged red type 1 muscle fiber types, decreased type 2. So there's a, con there's a conversion that's going. There's an increased demand in holding your muscles tight over a period of time. When you do that, your body responds, but eventually it tells you don't do that because it becomes painful, becomes sensitive. And so uh, with that, uh, you increase the sensitization, peripheral sensitization now, initially, of the muscle fiber types. So you have type 3 or type 4 uh, muscle nociceptors that increase in resting activity, which is related to spontaneous continuous pain, or the high threshold mechanical receptors increases the sensitization and tenderness within muscles. So you have both achy pain and tenderness, different nociceptors, but they're both integrated in the same spot within uh, increased uh, areas of the trigger point. So peripheral sensitization is basically a kind of an, what we call an energy crisis. There's a lot of demand. You're, you're tensing your muscles, and it's trying to uh, follow the tensing that you're directing it to do or the patients are directing it to do. So there's increased muscle demand, increased energy demand. There's not enough energy supply. Excess acetylcholine release uh, in the motor nerve and sensitization substances that increase the nociceptive and you get both tenderness and you get the dull, achy pain associated with myofascial pain. So then there's a couple other phenomena that occur as this sustained over time. You have a concept uh, 
called wind-up, which is, which is an increase in pain over time when a painful stimulus is de delivered repeatedly over time. So that happens very much, particularly if you're in an occupation where you have to sustain, say, on the computer, you're sitting, you have to sustain in that posture for a long period of time. That creates a wind-up scenario where every time you stimulate that muscle or the nociceptors, it just increases, ramps up and ramps up and ramps up. So patients typically start out with just tenderness. They don't have any pain. And then as this, the sustained tension continues, then it ramps up, the wind-up occurs, and that tenderness then becomes a dull, achy pain. Then the achy pain, which is usually regional at first, right overlying the trigger point, then starts to spread to adjacent muscles as the muscles recruit to probably handle that additional strain. And that's what happens with wind-up, and you get this spreading of the muscles and even the referred pain phenomena. And you get the expanding pain pat pattern as a result of that. So a stimulation of the pain receptors continues the tissues let you know it by expanding the pain pattern. First starts out regional, small area, gets broader within that muscle, broader to adjacent muscles that are, are uh, associated with the same contraction. Um, and uh, you get this tenderness, localized, and then the referred pain associated with it. So in a nutshell, this slide kind of shows that, that sensitization cycle that occurs within muscles. You have an acute muscle injury, half the time it actually comes on out of nowhere. Patients say, I don't know what started. It just started out of the blue. So in these cases, uh, that's as generally due to posture or repetitive strain, but you can get injury and trauma. And then, of course, central factors begin to play a role. When you have pain over a sustained period of time, you do develop uh, inactivity, you develop anxiety, sometimes depression in this progression, sleep disorders, and a whole host of other risk factors that then we easily label the patient as, well, you know, it's one of those kind of patients. So uh, they, everybody in my clinic has a physical pain problem. And this is the major diagnosis associated with that. When you know how to examine muscles, you'll find it just so reproducible. It's just so easy to do. We all have to learn about this particular condition. So in this situation, you have sensitization of muscle nociceptors, decreased inhibition of central input, convergence facilitation, increased pain and muscle strain at the central nervous system. And at the peripheral nervous system, you have a high muscle tone, low removal of these allergens, these, these uh, chemicals, nociceptors, and uh, you get this cent central sensitization, wind-up expansion of the receptor fields, and a hyperalgesia that occurs. So it just continues on and on unless the patient stops doing what the pain is telling them to stop doing. Don't strain the muscles when you have to do that. Now you have to do some rehabilitation too, and I'll get into that in terms of what are some of the factors that play a role both in protecting us from myofascial pain as well as risk factors. So pain, we have to make sure patients understand that pain is there for a reason. Chronic pain is there for a reason too. With myofascial pain, it is about re repetitive strain in, in general. And so it's a warning sign to protect us from harm and eliminate the cause, and then the pain subsides. I mean, it's not quite that easy, but it's very much like a, acute pain situations. 
And the cause, although not exactly, from an epidemiological point of view, there's a trend that suggests that these risk factors play a role in delayed recovery or progression of pain over time. So these characteristics, risk factors, are like causes that are such as sleep, diet, stress, smoking, that increase the possibility of an illness or injury. But what we frequently forget about is these protective factors. Those things that we do on a daily basis, whether it's good posture, exercise, we sleep well, we eat well, we have good social support, we try to minimize our conflicts with other people. These things reduces, they're like, like exercise healthy diet that prevents or reduces vulnerability to developing an illness. So here's the principle uh, presented this morning. Also, the risk principle is, is with a higher risk, more risk factors weighing down the scale here and fewer protective factors, you have delayed healing, delayed recovery, and more pain over time. Whereas the protective principle, which makes sense, is you have normal healing and no pain. More protective factors, fewer risk factors. So that's the balance that we're working with with patients on a regular basis. When we're training them, let's just boost your protective factors. That's, there's like lots of wonderful presentations during pain week today about exercise, for instance, as a, and health coaching and, and training about really helping the patients achieve this, this better balance within their lives. So there's risk factors that occur in all realms of our lives. And this uh, illustration just shows the seven different realms that we focus on in our clinic to try to identify. So there's physical problems like trauma, strain, posture, and comorbid conditions, lifestyle factors like diet, sleep, pacing, chemical use or chemical abuse, substance use, environmental factors such as uh, safety, you know, increasing or decreasing your risk of injury. Car accidents are one of the major causes of myofascial pain or initiating events anyways. Uh, and central sensitization risk is uh, increased by these emotional factors like anxiety, depression, anger, fear, societal factors, conflict, abuse, secondary gain. Spiritual factors such as burnout, feeling lost, stress, loss of hope, and, and, and cognitive factors such as confusion, unrealistic expectations, negative thought patterns, all increase indirectly the central sensitization. So it's like turning that volume up on the pain. It doesn't directly affect the muscles necessarily unless they're tensing as a result of the anxiety or clenching their teeth. But it generally, it just increases that sympathetic reaction, that, that uh, central sensitization that occurs, turns the volume up of the pain, and thus it plays a significant role in recovery also. So we have to understand that everybody is complex. Even somebody who comes in with a very, fairly simple acute back strain, what are the risk factors that would lead that person to delayed recovery and increase in pain? And so we need to identify, even in acute pain patients, look at the whole picture, identify all the risk factors as well as protective factors, and reinforce those, train patients on what they are. So this, to avoid this progression that goes from acute pain to chronic pain to intractable pain. And, you know, the average number of years a patient comes in to see me that they've suffered from pain is about five. 
You know, it'd be great if those patients, we identified those risk factors early on and managed them at the earliest point so that they have a potential for recovering. And they've already seen four different doctors before they've seen me. So, and, and uh, you know, it kind of moves along. They try this treatment, didn't work. Try this treatment, didn't work. So finally they get to a pain clinic and, and we have to sort of put together all the pieces. So these are some of the pieces that play a role in this whole progression. And uh, risk factors are very common. Uh, but I don't have on here the protective factors, but actually, at least in our clinic, in some of the studies, we found that they are more important than risk factors. What you do to protect yourself every day from pain. Exercise is a good example. I try to do yoga every day. I have back pain. If I don't, I'm just too tall and thin. So when, if, I, if I don't do yoga, I feel it within a couple days. So I, I really need to do that stretching pretty regularly. And I run also. So these risk factors occur in cycles. So they're not independent by themselves. I mean, a person, so in the onset of pain, this pain cycle, like in disrupted sleep or increased fatigue and chemical use, Increases muscle habits, strain, and tension, which may lead to more stress, anxiety, poor coping, depression, which may lead to more of this. And these cycles just continue on and on. And there are protective factor cycles, too, that actually uh, make it more, less vulnerable to developing myofascial pain and other chronic pain conditions. So the key here, then, is to really, how do we integrate this into our care model that we have, into our workflow? It's, it's not easy. Um, and so it's easy to manage myofascial pain. If you had all the time in the world, uh, you treat the muscle, you desensitize it with some kind of counterstimulation, and simply some trigger point massage helps decrease that peripheral sensitization very easily. So they just massage it for a minute. They feel better right away. So teaching them that, uh, we do that, we teach that to every one of our patients with myofascial pain. But also training the patient to reverse the pain cycle, exercises to improve range of motion is really critical. We've done a number of clinical trials looking at just purely stretching of the muscles that are affected with myofascial pain and how does that reduce, you know, does it reduce the pain? And it does. Stretching to the full range of motion, not overstretching, and be cautious about hypermobile joints because you don't want, those muscles are tight because they're stabilizing the joint. So you just have to be a little cautious, but then most people don't have hypermobile joints and stretching works pretty well. Um, reducing the risk factors, and then, oh, strength, core strength. Like if you have back pain, hip pain, spinal pain, core strength is really important. So there's a variety of exercises to help stabilize that spine as well as to stretch it out. And then, of course, we also add conditioning, too, although it doesn't directly affect the muscles that, have, that are painful and tender. Conditioning increases vascularity, strength in general. And so we get them involved in postural exercises, stretching, uh, strengthening, and conditioning exercises. And so it's a whole you know, half hour to an hour routine a day um, that we ask patients to do. Now, of course, we, they don't do it necessarily, but they do their best they can. And uh, we try to be realistic about what we expect uh, from our patients in an exercise program. So we also need to work on reducing the risk factors and strength and protective factors, uh, as I mentioned. So what treatments work best? 
Now the passive treatment. So we've done a whole host of systematic reviews of randomized clinical trials that are placebo controlled just to see what's out there in the literature for myofascial pain and we looked at the head and neck area. Neck pain, tension type headache, jaw pain. And I'll just, I can't go over all the forest plots and systematic reviews, but I'll hit a few of them just to give you some idea. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, this is a forest plot. These are all the clinical trials that we integrated, that we're able to integrate, that were in the literature. This is the, uh, whether it favors cognitive behavioral therapy versus placebo. And this diamond shape right here is whether it favors one or the other, or is it right down the middle, meaning that there's, it doesn't favor either. So against placebo, um, you can see that there is a very significant positive effect for CBT, better than placebo, including oral health instruction, relaxation, biofeedback, those types of CBT to try to reduce uh, many of these uh, risk factors. So it works quite well. Exercise, which is again a training process. CBT is training, exercise is training. Uh, you can see that it favors exercise quite well. Almost all of these studies, except for one, demonstrated significant improvement for myofascial pain. How about TENS, more passive, electrical nerve stimulation. You can see we integrated three studies. It favors TENS, this is supposed to say TENS. Um, so TENS works also. Uh, soft laser at the trigger point. Uh, this was interesting. There is five different clinical trials, and you can see this also favors the uh, treatment, the, the soft laser also. Shows greater improvement than placebo in treating myofascial pain. So there's a trend here. Everything we do seems to work to some extent. Uh, I'm not sure if soft laser is the same as knife light therapy. That's, I think it's different, but I'm not sure about light, light therapy. I didn't see any randomized clinical trials on that. Um, trigger point injections in acupuncture. Um, this is just a summary, but you can see two positives, one negative uh, means that there's three studies showed more benefit. One study said showed equal to placebo. So in general, they do work. Botox, same, same effect. No difference between these when they were compared. Acupuncture and dry needling, same effect. So needling a trigger point seems to be very effective, um, providing counterstimulative. This is a passive treatment, though. So it's something that is generally temporary, short term, unless you get to the, the risk factors. Yes? Yes, in fact, the duration was longer with Botox and trigger point injections. Uh, but here is Botox injections versus placebo, and you can see it did favor placebo. There's a few studies that were really on the borderline, but three studies that were favored it, so showed a trend towards the favorable effects of Botox, and it was a longer duration of relief. Dry needling, you can see where this is again, you know, slightly above placebo, the middle of the line. Slight overall trend. How about dental splints for jaw myofascial pain? Same thing. It's about 10% above placebo or so. So you can see the trend here. And pharmacological agents, 
Uh, clearly, the best agents were NSAIDs and acetaminophen. They had the most consistent evidence for short-term efficacy. Tricyclics were also up there, so both of them had very a lot of evidence. SSRIs, none. Muscle relaxants, minimal. Benzos, minimal effect. Uh, how about, well, NSAIDs versus acetaminophen with regard to... Uh, uh, myofascial pain. Well, you can see uh, this clearly uh, favored NSAID. Two of the studies showed no difference between the two, but two of the studies show significant difference uh, in favor of NSAID. So typically without GI distress or other uh, sensitivities to NSAIDs, I will use that over acetaminophen. How about opioids versus NSAIDs? This was a shocker. Three studies that compared the two, no difference in terms of now analgesic effect, not the euphoria effect that you get with opioids. We didn't measure that, just pain relief. So that was interesting. They're about the same, no difference between the two groups. Uh, and there are, of course, with medications, side effects that you have to say, I feel a lot better since I ran out of those pills you gave me. Um, so medications are can be a problem. Um, here are some of the the complications with medications took too long, did not relieve all the pain, did not always work, pain returned, came on with side effects. So they, you know, there's nothing really that's a panacea or this, this wonderful treatment uh, that, that just takes care of the pain. Muscles are part of us. We can't get rid of them. Uh, we can't cut them out. We can't do surgery with them. We have to train patients on using their muscles appropriately so they don't have pain. That's, the only, that's really the best thing that we have available long term is training. But treatments work short term. So most treatments work, but only a little bit better than placebo. They all work for different reasons. It's about a 10 to 20% above placebo. They have varying adverse events. But start with treatments have less risk, but always integrate training in with treatments. So how do we implement this uh, in our clinics? A lot of doctors are very suspicious about this. Well, okay, what do we do? I mean, this is a hard thing. So what we do, we talk about this transformative care model. It not only transforms the patient from one of, of illness and pain to one of health and well-being, but interestingly enough, it can help transform the healthcare system and to be in one that is more empowering and engaging and patient-centered, uh, which is, uh, you know, much of healthcare is moving towards that model of care. So what do we do to integrate this together? Well, we have online training, we have health professional treatment, we have a support group, and we have a health coach. And we all try to integrate that with the patient to try to help them make the changes that they need to make. And it's not easy. It's not easy to add even a half hour of exercise if you didn't exercise. Just the time crunch alone is difficult to develop these healthy habits. And to take some pauses during the day to be mindful of what's happening to your body at any particular time is a challenge. You get focused on somebody talking lectures on myofascial pain. It's hard to really Pay attention to what's happening to you at every moment of the day in a non-judgmental way. So we try to encourage pauses, encourage developing healthy habits like exercise programs, and to do some calming to get the central sensitization down. So we do all these as part of the training program. 
A lot of it's done online, some with a health coach, some with health professionals, including health psychologists, physical therapists, OTs. And so we, we encourage this type of model where we do the treatments. We don't forget about that. I mean, it's still patients are expecting it. It does help to some extent, but it's important to emphasize the short-term effects of treatment and test to identify what risk factors, protective factors are present with a risk assessment. Uh, you can do it online. Uh, there are a variety of out there. Train patients to reduce risk factors. Take, use a team if you can. And sometimes it's hard to have a physical therapist working close to you or a health psychologist or a coach. But there are the possibility of coaches even uh, that are online and that are use video conferencing and phone coaching too, which seems to work pretty well. So the transformative model, the training is you've got to get them involved in an exercise program and some type of CBT, mindfulness meditation works pretty well, as well as training them on the specific risk factors that they may have. If it happens to be posture, a postural tense, tense posture that they have all day long or they're sitting all day long, <coughs> all those. And then we would provide some type of farm seems to help pretty well. Physical therapies work also, acupuncture, dry needling, trigger point injections. I usually reserve these for those patients who don't improve within the first couple of months because, or they improve and their, their pain is getting better, but then it gets stuck at a certain point. And I can't identify what, why it's stuck. I'll, sometimes the, the central nervous system, peripheral nervous system just won't change, the muscles stay tight and you can help break up some of the tightness within the trigger points using some, some type of uh, dry needling or some direct injection within that trigger point. And for masticatory muscles, the stabilization splint is very helpful. Uh, there's a variety of splints that you can just put in immediately that are, take two or three minutes to make in a, a medical office or a dental office, of course, and there's others that are more long-term splints that are made with a laboratory and adjusted very carefully to protect the jaw, reduce oral habits, which is very important for, for tension-type headaches, temple headaches, and jaw pain. Um, and then th this is probably the most important aspect of it. We do have to shift our paradigms of care. We have to assume people are multidimensional that we understand the whole patient, not just their physical condition. We focus on self-responsibility. We engage the patients in self-care. We provide the education and training for them. And we create this long-term sustainable change in the patient that really transforms them from illness and pain to health and well-being. And so we have to enhance our care process also in the process. We have to develop these strong partnerships. We have to empower and motivate the patients. And remember the phrase, I'm happy to treat you, but it's more effective long-term if we also train you to reduce the causes of the pain. Are you willing? Are you interested? Nobody says no to that. Everybody says, yes, I'm interested in reducing the cause. Um, and so... Uh, that's very important. And then gathering social support. Social support is really critical to changing pain patients. If they don't have a support system, if they feel alone, lonely, and all they have is perhaps you, 
and they don't have friends or family uh, or even a health coach to help them call them and you know just keep them keep them on task it's uh, very very helpful and very important to do and in all patients they have ups and downs so it's going to get better first and then it gets worse and then it gets better and then it worse and it just gradually improves over time so knowing that ahead of time being realistic about what they can achieve that it takes months to make pain changes in pain it's not about one week or two weeks and then the last uh, couple of one we like to measure their outcomes we measure it each time they come in and we of course work on trying to transform their lives so we do our, in the development, we have an NIH grant that develops uh, some online risk assessment and training programs with some uh, patient guidebooks to really help so that one of the hard things I have found is that I just don't have the time to train patients. And I refer them to my team, but even they sometimes don't have the time. It's a lot of time. And so doing online training seems to be a very effective, scalable model for which to support the treatments that you provide. So we have this, uh, we have online uh, training platform that we're testing right now. Uh, it is described within this website. Um, and we have a health coaching model and we have uh, certified health professionals who are trained to be coaches. That's not means they're a you know, educator or they crack the whip. It's a, it's a collaborative process of goal setting and, and helping support. It provides this social support that's the most important thing. Um, and so, uh, and then we look at program effectiveness. These are very, it has to be personalized, evidence-based, addresses underlying causes, comprehensive. We have to realize that it's just the little things. It's the baby steps that they take every day that's the most important uh, that they make within their lives. They have to learn through an experience. So they're not going to learn by looking at an online program. That doesn't really work. If they don't actually do the exercise in the office, demonstrate them to you so they know what it is, uh, it's really hard for them to, to learn it. So it is an experiential process. Reminders are really helpful. That's what these cell phones are particularly good about, um, and social support. So all of those increase program effectiveness. Now we have the outcomes of our training program that we have for health professionals to learn is that we've had now it's about 40,000 people take it, and uh, we've had very good success, some good comments about the course that's available. Um, so let me just kind of, this is, uh, the course is available at Coursera. Um, and uh, that's the end of my presentation. I'm a little bit early. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, I'm happy to, I know it's late in the evening actually now. If there's any questions, I'm happy to answer them individually or uh, within the group. How does Medicare reimburse? Um, well, you know, Medicare right now is learning. They're learning the efficacy of online training and how cost-effective it is also. And so they will reimburse online training as well as other health plans uh, that we have talked to. So what they're doing, health plans are doing, is they're typically buying the program and making it available for their patients at no cost. 
It's not the same as integrating it in with the health professional. What you say is the most important thing to the patient. And if you say, well, you've got to learn these things, uh, it's going to be more effective than having the insurance company buy it and make it available. So, yes, question. We use outcome measures which are validated. We use a chronic pain grade uh, developed up in the University of uh, Washington, Seattle. We use a symptom severity index which integrates pain intensity with, with uh, uh, frequency and duration. And those are our two pain measures. And then we use an activity, well, the chronic pain grade also has activities of, of daily living and interference that we use also. Uh, we do have a self-report measure of, medica of medication and healthcare use also that we use that we just developed ourselves. Uh, in our studies, we're looking at health utilization through electronic medical records. So symptom severity, chronic pain grade are the ones for pain. And uh, any other comments? Well, thank you very much for your attention. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoy the rest of pain week. It's really a remarkable week. <laughs>